Last time we spoke about the landing at Apchitka and the invasion of the Russell Islands. The Aleutian Island campaign saw a lot of action when the Allies decided to investigate whether Amchitka Island would be suitable for a new airfield and what the Japanese intentions there were. A race began between the two, but it would be the Americans who would seize the island and begin the process of building up an airfield upon it. Then over in the South Pacific, the Japanese had finished up Operation KE and with it they had used and abandoned the Russell Islands. The Allies quickly launched an invasion of the islands, prompting the Japanese to send some air raids, but all for naught. Now with the Russells in hand, the Americans had a launching point to attack New Georgia. Yet today we are going to jump into one of the major naval battles of 1943. This episode is the Battle of the Bismarck Sea. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Greg Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, The Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube where I'm just now finishing up a multi-part series on aspects of the attack on Pearl Harbor you might not know about. And just a friendly reminder, I now myself have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel. And over there you will find exclusive content, including exclusive podcasts, dedicated to subjects you want to hear more about, but perhaps I can't cover here or on other projects I'm associated with. So if that's of interest to you, please go check out the Patreon, or you can catch me at the Pacific War Discord, or the Kings and Generals Discord server, or you can just leave a comment on any of my YouTube videos. I'm always listening. Last time we were in New Guinea, the forces of Brigadier Moten had just arrived in the nick of time to save Wow from the main Japanese thrust. The Australians were pouring reinforcements and supplies via transport aircraft daily. On January the 31st, 35 aircraft had made 71 trips, and the next day, 40 aircraft had made 53. This allowed the Kanga force to increase to 3,000 men, and receive heavy equipment necessary to smash the Japanese. Facing larger numbers and possible encirclement, Major General Toru Okabe had to order his men to withdraw. And with that order came the last hope of capturing Wao, it seemed. By February the 1st, Moten had 201 officers and 2,965 soldiers of all ranks at his disposal. He began sending patrols across the Black Cat Trail and the Jap Trail, and he quickly surmised that the Japanese threat was strongest in the Crystal Creek area, where they had established a headquarters. The Australians neutralized the Crystal Creek area and began pushing the Japanese towards Mubo. By late February, the Australians controlled the area from Wapali, to Bubaining and a large part of Mubo Valley. Nerve-wracking patrols set off multiple ambushes and skirmishes for countless days. 
The Australian High Command could only authorize such limited activity as they did not yet possess sufficient numbers to undertake further major offensives. Moton was awarded a bar to his Distinguished Service Order for, quote, His High Order of Leadership and Control at WOW. While the Australians were tossing all they could via aerial transport, the Japanese attempted to thwart this. Aerial strikes were sent to hit the airstrip at WOW, but the typically terrible New Guinea weather hampered the Japanese. Aircraft dispatched from Rabaul were unable to locate WOW through the torrential weather and would return back without any success. Then on February the 6th, eight P-39s of the 40th Fighter Squadron were escorting five Dakota transports incoming to WOW when they sighted 24 Japanese aircraft. Captain Thomas Winburn led the P-39s to engage the enemy, claiming to have downed 11 Zeros and a Sally. Simultaneously, eight P-40s of the 7th Fighter Squadron were escorting other Dakotas inbound for WOW when they sighted 12 Japanese bombers attempting to bomb the airstrip. The Dakotas were turned back at the last second as the P-40s engaged the bombers claiming to have downed seven aircraft. On the ground at the airstrip in WOW were four Dakotas while five circled its skies hoping to land after the combat was over. Second Lieutenant Robert Schweizen was circling around in his Dakota and he was shot down by a Japanese bomber. He alongside four other crew died. Another grounded Dakota was damaged and a CAC wearaway was destroyed by a bomber. The increased aerial pressure prompted Major General Anus Whitehead over in Port Moresby to order three squadrons to join the battle for Wild Skies. P-38s of the 39th and the 9th Fighter Squadrons and P-40s of the 41st Fighter Squadron intercepted Japanese fighters and bombers claiming to have shot down over 23 aircraft. The Japanese were decisively losing the war over the skies, showcasing the limitations of their offensive capabilities in the area. Now, while the Japanese surprise attack against WoW had failed, and they had been pushed back heavily, all was not lost for the Japanese. They still held some high ground around Wapali and Guadalcanal. Yet in order to turn things around, Major General Toru Okabe would require significant reinforcements to defeat Moton's 17th Brigade. Things were extremely chaotic at this time for the Japanese High Command. The battle for Guadalcanal had collapsed, leading to Operation KE, which involved a major shuffling of troops all over the place. They first ordered Lieutenant General Josai Aoki's 20th Division to depart Korea for Guadalcanal and for Lieutenant General Heisuke Abe's 41st Division to depart China for Rabaul. Lieutenant General Hitoshi Imamura, commander of the Japanese 8th Area Army at Rabaul, ordered Lieutenant General Hatsuo Adachi's 18th Army to secure Wewak, Tilavu, and Medang in New Guinea. Adachi was the one who had ordered Major General Toru Okebe the commander of the 51st Division and the 102nd Infantry Regiment to capture Wau in order to further secure Lei in Salamawa. However, with the conclusion of Operation KE, the focus was reshifted from the Solomons to New Guinea. General Imamura and Vice Admiral Gunichi Mikawa, the commander of the Southeast Area Fleet, developed a plan to move the 18th Area Army, HQ, and the rest of the main body of the 51st Division from Rabaul to Lei. They would also follow this up by moving the remaining forces of the 20th Division to Medang. The first movement was set for the 3rd of March, and the second for March the 10th. It was to be a very risky plan, as the Allies held aerial supremacy. 
The 18th Army held some war games indicating the operation would lose around 4 out of 10 transports and up to 40 aircraft. They believed the operation stood a 50-50% chance of success, and they were limited in alternatives. If they tried to land all the forces simply at Medang, the men would have to march over 230 kilometers over swamplands, mountains, and jungle terrain. It seems the Japanese were beginning to acknowledge their lack of success at logistics, as this course of action was deemed impossible. Over on the Australian side, General McKay sent word to Blamey that he feared the Japanese would make a second attempt to capture Wow. He reasoned that even with the projected arrival of reinforcements in the form of the 4th and 15th Brigades, they would still be outnumbered by the Japanese. McKay estimated the Japanese held around 7,500 men in the Lei Salamawa area, while they held onto their position in the Mubo region. Because of this, he had restricted activity to patrolling to not allow for any gaps allowing any openings against Wow, so that more men could be brought over for its defense. Despite the enormous success in transporting men to the area, supply continued to be a major issue. There was a major increase in the number of aircraft at the Dobudura airfields thanks to the capture of Buna, allowing for men and materials to be tossed to Wow. But in early February, General Whiteheads confided to McKay that two of his squadrons of 18 aircraft were pressed to their limits and that the bad weather was greatly reducing their ability to deliver the men and supplies. Whitehead predicted correctly that the bad weather would continue for the next six weeks, which had left typically two-hour windows for the deliveries per day. Attempting to improve the situation, General Blamey had begun the construction of a jeep trail all the way back in January, from the Bulldog to Wow. But during the process, the surveyors quickly discovered the terrain was extremely formidable and that the job would take many months. Native carriers performed the lion's share of work, as the 68-mile trail would end up taking four months to complete. Now, during the campaign for Bunagona, the Allies owed much of their success largely due to their control of the air, and this is, as we can see at Wow, continuing to be a vital factor. The Japanese, of course, held their large air and naval base at Rabaul, and since the early days of the war, it remained an ongoing threat to air and sea supremacy in the region. Blanche Bay in Rabaul provided the Japanese with one of the best natural harbors in the South Pacific. It is encircled by hills. It's around six miles long and two and one and a half miles wide. It, alongside three other harbors, provided an anchorage for a large body of ships, as many as 60 by some accounts. The Japanese had built up the harbors and their defenses with more than 300 anti-aircraft guns. By the fall of 1943, the Japanese had almost 100,000 men stationed at Rabaul, the vast majority being army troops. The Southern Fleet Force had around 21,000 men under the command of Vice Admiral Jinichi Kusaka. Air strength at Rabaul depended on the reinforcements provided by the combined fleet, but in early 1943 they held a significant enough number to pose a major threat to the Allied operations, if utilized properly. General MacArthur was deeply concerned about Rabaul, despite having the numbers in theory to negate its threat. MacArthur consistently pushed for an invasion of eastern New Britain in early 1943 and disagreed on using air power to negate Rabaul. 
Then, during the bloody campaign against Bunagona, he declared the decision to bypass Rabaul would, quote, go down in history as one of the time's greatest military mistakes. Then, later on, he would agree that bypassing Rabaul was a good strategy and that it had largely been done because of his advisement. Basically, what I am saying is MacArthur is full of shit and more worried about his autobiographies than actual decision-making. Regardless of that, MacArthur's early suggestions indicated Rabaul was vitally important and needed to be neutralized. This is sort of a no-brainer as you can imagine. It was one of Japan's largest naval air force bases covering all major operations in the Eastern and Central Solomons. Fortunately for the Allies, there was no unified command at Rabaul. As we all know, the IJA and the IJN did not get along very well, and Rabaul's operations is a great example of that. The IJA had fewer aircraft based regularly at Rabaul, although their responsibility was to cover New Guinea. Throughout 1943, the IJN's air forces were primarily concerning themselves with the Solomons, which would eventually see them losing nearly 400 aircraft and irreplaceable pilots for their efforts. Because of the catastrophe of the Guadalcanal campaign, Rabaul was largely neutralized by U.S. bombers from the Solomons. By mid-February, Imamura and Kusaka recognized the need to reinforce Lei. They had sent a three-ship convoy on the 19th, which went unmolested to Wewak, and this emboldened them to brave the Allied aerial supremacy. Thus, on February the 28th, a convoy of 16 ships commanded by Rear Admiral Masatomi Kamura departed Rabaul. Six transports, an oil tanker, and their destroyer escorts would be combat-loaded so that the supplies and the men could be offloaded quickly to minimize turnaround time. Almost 7,000 men, mostly from the 115th Regiment of the 51st Division and some SNLF Marines, were crowded onto the transports, guarded by an escort force of eight destroyers. Lieutenant General Hatazo Adachi and his staff were on board accompanied by Lieutenant General Hidemitsu Nakano and his staff. The planned route was to go along the northern coast of New Britain through the Bismarck Sea to Cape Gloucester and then through the Vitae Strait to the Huon Gulf. The Japanese commanders believed their movement would be masked by terrible weather. Allied command began detecting signs of a major convoy operation in early February. On February the 14th, aerial photographs taken over Rabaul indicated over 79 vessels at port, including 45 merchant ships and 6 transports. It was clear to the Allied command a convoy was going to be dispatched, but its destination was unknown. Two days later, naval codebreakers at Frumal in Melbourne and Washington DC deciphered some coded messages revealing the Japanese were going to be sending a convoy to Wewak, Medang, and Lei. Other intercepted coded messages from the Japanese 11th Air Fleet to the convoy indicated they would reach Lei by March the 5th or, at latest, the 12th. Another aerial reconnaissance over Rabaul on the 22nd indicated 59 merchant vessels were at harbor. Kenny read the ultra-intelligence to General MacArthur on the 25th and the prospect of 7,000 Japanese being landed at Lei certainly disturbed him. Kenny then sent word to Whitehead of the proposed convoy date and warned him that Japanese would most likely be performing a pre-convoy aerial strike. 
Kenny urged that he cut back on the transport hours so that the aircraft could be made ready the moment the convoy appeared. Kenny would fly over to Port Moresby on the 26th to speak to Whitehead personally, and the two generals concluded the Japanese convoy was going to go through the Vitesse Strait. Now, in the Southwest Pacific, conventional strategic bombing was not really on the menu, as industrial targets in Japan were obviously too far away. Thus, since the early days of the war, the primary mission of the Allied bomber force in the region was to intercept Japanese supply lines, particularly their sea lanes. Some 416 sorties were flown in January of 1943, resulting in only two ships sunk and three ships damaged. Clearly, the Allied tactics needed some revamping. Captain Bill Gehring of the RAF, part of Kenny's staff, held considerable experience in air-to-sea operations, and he began to recommend that Japanese convoys should be met with simultaneous attacks from different altitudes and directions. This led Allied Air Force brains to come up with some innovative tactics. In February of 1942, the RAF began experimenting with something called skip bombing. Skip bombing was an anti-ship technique used primarily by the British and Germans in the Atlantic. It involved flying one's aircraft just a dozen feet above the sea level towards a target whereupon bombers would release their bombs, which ideally would ricochet across the surface of the water to hit the sides of the ships or explode overhead, i.e. skipping. For those of you who play World of Warships, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's some nasty stuff. And it's a lot of fun in the game to pull off. Another similar technique involved bombs taking a low altitude between 200 to 500 feet and dropping around mast height, approximately 10 to 15 feet and 600 yards away from their target. And this was called mast height bombing. Now this technique, when performed well, would see the bombs smash into the sides of the ship as well. These two techniques paired with some slow-fuse bombs would see considerable use in the event we are about to jump into. Now, Kimura envisioned by taking the route along the northern coast that this would put enough distance between the convoy and the Allied reconnaissance aircraft until they reached the Vitaz Strait. Kimura took the destroyer Shirayuki as his flagship to command the operation. Destroyer Tokitsukaze would carry General Adachi, and destroyer Yukikakaze would carry General Nakano. The idea was that upon the arrival at Lei, the ships would anchor 600 or so meters along the shoreline just due west of the airfield around the mouth of the Busi River. They would use a smokescreen to cover the anchorage to make their unloading activity hinder aerial attacks. An escort of 40 IJN and 6 IJ aircraft would provide aerial protection for the convoy from 5 a.m. to 6 p.m. each day it operated. General Blamey wrote, Every effort will be made on our own Air Force to deal with the enemy as he approaches. Thus, Generals Blamey and MacArthur tossed the job to General Kenny, the commander of the Allied forces. Kenny had at his disposal the RAF under Air Vice Marshal William Bostock and the 5th Air Force led by Brigadier General Innes Whitehead. In total, it was 154 fighters, 34 light bombers, 41 medium bombers, and 39 heavy bombers available for combat operations in New Guinea. The 5th Air Force was subdivided into two commands, the V Fighter Command led by Brigadier General Paul Wurtsmith, consisting of 95 fighters, some P-39s, P-38s, and P-40s. And then there was the V Bomber Command, led by Brigadier General Howard Remy, 
which had 29 worn-out B-26s, 27 B-25s, 55 B-17s, and 60 B-24s. Alongside this, Kenny and Whitehead had at their disposal the third attack groups of light bombers, nicknamed the Grim Reapers, which included a squadron of A-20 Bostons, equipped with four .50 caliber guns and long-range fuel tanks. Now, just to make a point here, the A-20 Bostons were usually equipped with .30 caliber machine guns, and they could not fly across the Owen Stanley range from Port Moresby. That was simply too far a distance for their fuel tanks. But Kenny was very keen on the attack aviation concept, which focused on using low-level strafing and bombing methods. Alongside the Grim Reapers was two squadrons of B-25s that had been modified by Major Paul Pappy Gunn, the same man who had altered the Grim Reapers. The B-25s had their lower turrets and tail guns removed, and instead had four .50 caliber machine guns installed in the nose and another four in the forward-firing chin blisters. With the top turret firing its guns forward, the aircraft boasted an extraordinary strafing firepower, and on top of that it still carried six 100-pound bombs and 60 23-pound fragmentation bombs. The fragmentation bombs were outfitted with small parachutes so that they could be used for low-level bombing on an airfield without damaging the aircraft, trying to drop them. Honestly, try to imagine this Goliath beast firing those .50 cals. It would have been like a torrential rain of lead. All of these modifications would allow aircraft like the B-25s to be much more capable of pulling off a masthead bombing technique, without the need for a bombardier, which ironically was in opposition to their original role of carrying out bombardier-assisted missions from altitude. The Australians could also count on the support of the number 9 group led by Captain William Gehring, consisting of 59 fighters, 26 light-medium bombers, and 2 heavy bombers, the number 37 wing of Hudson bombers, P-40 Kitty Hawks and Beaufort bombers operating at Port Moresby, and the number 71 wing of Weirways, A-20s, and bow fighters operating out of Milne Bay. So, needless to say, there was a lot of Allied firepower on hand. Now, as I had mentioned prior, Allied attempts to hit Japanese shipping, particularly that coming out of Rabaul, had shown not too many results in the past. So in order to increase the success of hitting the convoy, Gehring persuaded Whitehead to rehearse a plan for the attacks, integrating all available aircraft. This specifically included performing the bomb skipping and masthead bombing techniques. Gehring's idea was to get all the aircraft to gather over Cape Ward Hunt at 9.30am so that they could get themselves over the enemy convoy by 10am all at once to completely overwhelm the enemy escorting aircraft and anti-aircraft defenses. Two rehearsals were carried out, with the second one turning out to be, quote, damn good. On March the 1st, at 2am, the convoy departed Rabaul. The convoy slowly made its way across the Bismarck Sea undetected, as for the past two days, major tropical storms had been occurring since about February the 27th. However, on March the 1st, there was a clearing, and a crew of patrolling B-24 Liberators managed to spot the convoy. They reported the sighting, prompting a dispatch of eight B-17s to be sent to the location, but by the time they got there, they had failed to relocate the convoy. The destroyer Tokitsukaze then intercepted an Allied message stating their convoy had been spotted. This prompted Kimura to put all the forces on full alert. General Adachi, who was on board the Tokitsukaze, was not nervous by the report, stating it was all part of the plan. 
His reasoning was that the Allies were always going to find them. But with the terrible weather, it would be unlikely that they would be able to perform any decent attacks. At dawn of March the 2nd, a force of six RAF A-20 Bostons coming out of Ward's Strip at Port Moresby performed an airstrike against Ley to hinder its use to the fighter escorts of the convoy. At 10 a.m., another B-24 Liberator found the convoy, prompting another order for eight B-17s to be sent in to attack. They would soon be followed up an hour later by a group of 20 other B-17s. The B-17s planned to rendezvous with some P-38s of the 9th Fighter Squadron, but they arrived too early to the convoy's location and thus they had to face the Japanese escort fighters all on their own until the P-38s eventually arrived to the scene. The first group of eight B-17s made their runs at the convoys through anti-aircraft fire and zero fighters. They dropped 1,000-pound bombs from 5,000 feet, claiming five critical bomb hits and sinking three merchant ships. The Kyokusei Maru was hit and sunk, carrying 1,200 IGA troops. The second group of B-17s then showed up, and luckily for them, 12 P-38s had managed to haul it pretty quickly over to escort them, just in the nick of time, to make their bombing runs. The B-17s claimed to have sunk four enemy ships, but in reality the only damage to transports, the Teomaru and the Nojima. Eight Japanese fighters were shot down with 13 others damaged pretty severely, just at the cost of nine B-17s damaged in return. While the Kiyokuzai Maru was sinking, the destroyers Asugumo and the Yukikaze managed to rescue 950 troops out of the water alongside two mountain guns. Because destroyers are fast, obviously, the two ships opted to detach from the convoy and haul it over to Lei to drop off the survivors before trying to regroup and reperform their escort duties. The survivors in General Nakano would be brought to Lei by the end of the day, and the two destroyers would be turned around to rejoin the convoy by daybreak. Throughout the rest of the day, the convoy would be subjected to multiple heavy bomber attacks. 11 B-18s made an evening strike, inflicting minor damage to another transport. The day's efforts saw the convoy zigzagging to save its life from high-level bombing, and this led it to be stretched out for about 20 kilometers. Rather bizarrely, the Japanese fighter escorts showed little aggression towards the American heavy bombers, and they departed rather early from the day's action. During the night, PBY Catalinas from the number 11 RAF squadron began shadowing the convoy. One PBY flown by Flight Lieutenant Terry Dugan received a message from HQ to shadow the convoy in order to guide a strike of torpedo bombers, which did not make sense, so he discarded it. The message, as he would find out later, was not necessarily for him, but rather to trick the enemy. The Allied intelligence officers back at the HQ were certain the Japanese were listening in on all of their radio traffic, so they began sending false messages. Early the next day, Admiral Kimura made what would be a very disastrous decision, ordering his ships to mark the time and to circle in the dark. The process cost the convoy two hours of night cover, and the reasons behind the decision are quite unknown. It is theorized Kimura was trying to make sure his convoy would appear to the destination at the same time their fighter escorts would show up for the daily activity. In any case, Kimura's convoy would not be seeing their escorts nor stormy weather at sunrise to their dismay. Sunrise on March the 3rd saw a beautiful sunny day, a terrible omen. 
The convoy was now within striking distance of Milne Bay, and eight Bristol Beaufort torpedo bombers of the number 100 RAF squadron took off by 4 a.m. Only two Beauforts would actually make it to the convoy, and they failed to cause any real damage. The Japanese commanders, however, were now alerted by the presence of torpedo bombers, so they began maneuvers, turning the beam of their ships to the enemy aircraft, exposing the full length of their ships to strafing. For those of you who play World of Warships, you probably know this all too well. But if torpedo bombers are coming towards your warship, you want to put it facing the bombers so that they have, you know, less of a target to hit. What you don't want to do is put the sides of your ship in front of them. That offers an easy target. Now, this is for torpedo bombers, but what happens when you are going into strafe? At 5.10 a.m., four Australian A-20s performed an airstrike against Ley, catching several grounded planes that were needed to escort the convoy. At 8.30 a.m., a striking force of 90 aircraft consisting of the squadron's B-17s, four squadrons of B-25s, including some Grim Reapers, a squadron of bowfighters, a squadron of A-20s, and two squadrons of P-38 Lightnings. The striking group departed Port Moresby, and headed for Cape Ward Hunt while 22 A-20 Bostons of the number 22 RAF squadron attacked Lay to reduce the convoy's air cover. The striking group took up their practice formation with the B-17s leading the echelon at 7,000 feet, the B-25s behind them at 4,000 feet, the bow fighters at 500 feet, and some other B-25s designated to perform low-level bombing at around 700 feet and P-38 Lightnings hanging around at 12,000 feet. At 10 a.m., 13 B-17s reached the convoy first and began bombing them from 7,000 feet, causing the convoy to zigzag, dispersing their formation and reducing the concentration of their anti-aircraft fire considerably. The B-17s attracted the Zero Fighter escorts, but they were quickly pounced upon by the P-38 Lightnings. One B-17 was shot apart by a Zero, and its crew took to parachuting. The parachuting men were fired upon by Zero Fighters, and when they hit the water, some Zeros continued to strafe them. Although the B-17s inflicted no damage, seven Zeros would be shot down by the P-38s, reducing the convoy's protection. Meanwhile, the Bowfighters were coming in just above the waves, making it look like they were Beaufort torpedo bombers. Admiral Kimura ordered his ships to maneuver so that their beams were towards the enemy, expecting torpedo runs, and this exposed his ships to the Bowfighter's strafing runs. The Australian pilots began to open up with their 6.303 machine guns and their 420mm Hispano cannons. The combination unleashed a carnage, seeing rivers of fire erupt around the lengths of the ships. Some vessels were stopped dead in the water as a result of their officers being cut down to pieces across their bridges. Much of the convoy's anti-aircraft positions were destroyed by all of the strafing. After the first strafing run, B-17s and B-25s began to make their bombing runs rather unexpectedly, leaving the bowfighters scrambling to fly as bombs were literally falling down all around them. Out of 37 bombs dropped by the 90th Attack Squadron Grim Reapers, 17 were claimed as direct hits. 12 A-20 Bostons from the 89th Bomb Squadron claimed while performing low-level bombing that 11 out of the 20 bombs made their mark. The B-25s of the 405th Bomb Squadron dropped 35 500-pound bombs from low-level and claimed 4 direct hits. These bombs had 5-second delay fuses as well. The bombing runs caused massive chaos amongst the convoy, 
so much so that the pilots claimed to have seen two Japanese vessels collide into another. The modified Grim Reapers strafed the convoy during all of the runs. A squadron leader named Brian Blackjack Waller recalled this. I was observing it from the side, and all these ships. Honestly, I've never seen anything like it. Dozens of planes, all going in at zero feet. In fact, I could see a bowfighter and a B-25 both going in at the same target, and I thought, gee, get out one of you. The assortment of different aircraft were all coming in at all sorts of angles and at all sorts of altitudes, many very low. It was chaotic looking. Garrett Middlebrook, a co-pilot in one of the B-25s, described the ferocity of the strafing attacks. They went in and hit this troop ship. What I saw looked like sticks, maybe a foot long or something like that. Or splinters flying up off the deck of the ship. They'd fly all around and twist crazily in the air and fall out in the water. Then I realized what I was watching were human beings. I was watching hundreds of those Japanese just blown off the deck by those machine guns. They just splintered around the air like sticks in a whirlwind and they'd fall in the water. The Shiryuki was the first ship to be hit by a combination of strafing and bombing attacks. Just about all of the men on her bridge were strafed, including Kimura, who was wounded. She received a bomb hit that, that smashed a magazine, exploding, breaking her stern off and causing her to sink. Her crew transferred to the Shikinami as the Shirayuki was scuttled. The Tokitsukaze was hit fatally and her crew had to abandon her. The Arashio was strafed so violently it caused her to collide with the transport Nojima disabling both ships. Both ships would have to be abandoned as the Allies strafed and bombed them, sinking Nojima eventually. The remaining destroyers struggled to save the survivors in the water. By 10.15, all seven of the transports had been hit and they were sinking, 100 kilometers southeast of Finchafen. After midday, a second series of attacks were made by B-17s and A-20s, who strafed and bombed the Asesio while she was trying to rescue some survivors. The four remaining destroyers withdrew up the Vitesse Strait and they were joined by the destroyer Hatsuyuki, coming from Long Island. The Hatsuyuki and the Yurinami brought 2,700 survivors back to Rabaul, while the other three destroyers continued picking up survivors and would eventually bring them to Kaving by March the 5th. During the night of March the 3rd, a force of 10 PT boats led by Lieutenant Commander Barry Atkins made an attempt to finish off the convoy alongside some B-17s and bowfighters. Two of the PT boats hit submerged debris and were turned back, but the other eight continued on arriving off Ley in the early hours of March the 4th. Atkins spotted a fire that turned out to be the transport Ogawa Maru. PT-143 and PT-150 fired torpedoes at it, further crippling and eventually sinking the transport. The Asashio was hit by a B-17 with a 500-pound bomb as she was trying to grab survivors, and she would sink. Amongst the four surviving destroyers, it would only be the Yikikakaze that went undamaged. The PT boats and the Allied aircraft attacked the Japanese rescue vessels and survivors clinging to rafts or floating out in the sea. The decision to attack the survivors was highly unpopular amongst the pilots and sailors, 
but it was deemed a necessity on the grounds the rescued Japanese were most likely going to be landed for military duty if not attacked. One Japanese survivor wrote this in his diary of the entire ordeal. The Boeing B-17 is most terrifying. We are repeating the failure of Guadalcanal. Most regrettable. Many Allied pilots were sickened by these actions. One pilot recalling, As per instructions, we flew around to see if some ships were still afloat. Some were sinking and burning. We saw a lifeboat with about 20 people. I thought, these poor guys. But we had a job to do, because if they got to shore, they were going to kill our guys. So I came around and I strafed them. One of the cruel things of war which had to be done. Another pilot recounted this. At the briefing, an Australian officer had told us we must not permit a single enemy to reach the shores of New Guinea. They explained the suffering, agony, and loss by our troops in having to hunt down and kill a suicidal Jap. It is estimated around 352 Japanese troops were killed during these attacks, adding to 2,890 casualties suffered during the battle. Another 224 survivors in the water were rescued by the I-17 and the I-26, shuffled over to various nearby islands like Goodenough Island. Of the 116 Japanese that would be landed on Goodenough Island, 72 would be killed with 42 captured and 2 missing. Officials at the Advanced Air Echelon at Port Moresby went through the claims of their pilots and sailors and they believed a great number of ships had been destroyed. Their conclusion was that 12 transports, 3 cruisers, and 7 destroyers had all been sunk, which MacArthur readily believed. Although a report later on would come out to claim the number was actually 4 destroyers and 8 transports. Later the Japanese would admit that 3,000 soldiers had been killed during the battle, but this did not count the hundreds of sailors lost on the ships, nor the pilots in the aircraft. MacArthur would make a commendation on March the 4th for all the Air Force units in New Guinea, stating, It cannot fail to go down in history as one of the most complete and annihilating combats of all time. My pride and satisfaction in you is boundless. Likewise, Kenny added this, stating, Tell the whole gang that I am so proud of them, I am about to blow a fuse. MacArthur would also at the offset claim that they had caused 15,000 enemy casualties, describing the battle as a decisive aerial engagement for the Southwest Pacific Theater. And it certainly was a decisive victory. It was a devastating loss for Japan that showcased Japan was no longer capable of being on the offensive. I want to finish off the tale of the Battle of the Bismarck Sea with this account from Reiji Musuda, a crewman aboard the destroyer Arasio, as it leaves a vivid and harrowing account of the attack. They would come in on you at low altitude, and they'd skip bombs across the water like you'd throw a stone. That's how they bombed us. 
All seven of the remaining transports were enveloped in flames. Their masts tumbled down, their bridges flew to pieces, the ammunitions they were carrying were hit, and the whole ships blew up. They hit us amidships. B-17s, fighters, skip bombers, and torpedo bombers. On our side, we were madly firing, but we had no chance to beat them all off. Our bridge was hit by two 500-pound bombs. Nobody could have survived. The captain, the chief navigator, the gunnery, the torpedo chiefs, and the chief medical officer were all killed in action. The chief navigator's blackened body was hanging there, all alone. Then a second airstrike came in. We were hit by 30 shells from port to starboard. The ship shook violently. Bullet fragments and shrapnel made it look like a beehive. All of the steam pipes burst. The ship became boiling hot. We tried to abandon ship, but planes flying almost as low as the masts sprayed us with machine guns. Hands were shot off, stomachs blown open. Most of the crew were murdered or wounded there. Hundreds were swimming in the ocean. Nobody was there to rescue them. They were wiped out, carried away by a strong current, running at roughly four or five knots. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube where I'm just now finishing up a multi-part series on aspects of the attack of Pearl Harbor you might not know about. Also, just a friendly reminder, I myself now have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel. And over there, you can find some exclusive podcasts based on things that you want to hear more about, things that you are telling me at the Pacific War Discord, or over at the Kings and Generals Discord server, or when you just comment any of my YouTube videos. So, let me know. I want to make more content just for those of you who are willing to pay a bit extra. The Battle of the Bismarck Sea proved the Japanese were indeed incapable of being on the offensive. The Allies were now in the driving seat. It also showcased war produces wild innovations that can prove quite deadly.